0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, the second episode in our series on cosmology, starting from nothing. One of the key things to understand in this story, cosmology, our history of the universe, is that we must begin from a place of total ignorance. There are many ideas about the universe, how vast it is, billions of light years, that it's billions of years old and contains trillions of stars and galaxies, that it's expanding, the kind of distances and length scales we're talking about as well as the fact that humans and our solar system, our planet, occupy no particularly special place in the galaxy, which in turn occupies no particularly special place within the universe. All of these ideas, which we now take for granted, have emerged from ignorance. Practically all of them were controversial when they were first proposed. The evidence for them, which began in rather speculative and flimsy fashion, was built up over time until it became resounding and conclusive. Each of these ideas is not handed down from on high, but had to scrappily fight its way against competing ideas. In fact, these new ideas are often opposed until the evidence does become overwhelming, and the old paradigm has to be broken down entirely. But a priori, starting from nothing and beginning in our tiny corner of the universe, we know nothing at all. That's what makes this story so remarkable. Using almost entirely nothing but the starlight that falls on Earth, Experiments we can run in laboratories to explore the laws of physics here, and a meticulous process of gathering data, gathering information, creating theories that might be consistent with it, and then testing the predictions of those theories. This is the scientific method by which we get this information. This is how we have been able to painstakingly construct this picture, this tapestry, and to build up our understanding of how the universe was, is, and will be. But we started with a blank canvas and we made a lot of mistakes. Take William Herschel, for example. In the late 18th century, along with his sister Caroline, who was one of the first women to be recognized by astronomical societies for her scientific work, they tried to estimate quantitatively the scale and structure of our universe. The first quantitative estimates of the scale and structure of the universe were made by Herschel in the late 18th century. The Herschel's model of the large-scale structure of the universe was based upon counting stars. What they did made some intrinsic sense. They pointed their telescope at around 600 different positions in the sky and counted the stars that could be observed in every single direction. To try to understand the nature of our galaxy, the Herschels made a couple of assumptions that turned out to be dead wrong. First of all, they wrongly assumed that all stars have the same absolute luminosities. They then assumed that the sun was at the centre of the galaxy. These assumptions now seem naive, but they are the simplest explanation after all, so you can argue that philosophically they might both be justified as your first guess. Now if all the stars are equally bright intrinsically, then the difference in their apparent brightness when observed on Earth must just be due to their distance. And so the Herschels tried to map out the galaxy, assuming that the less bright stars they could see were always further away, and plotting each new star according to its direction and apparent distance. John Michelle, who is now remembered as the first person to theorise about the existence of black holes, disagreed. In 1767, he showed that there must be a dispersion in the absolute luminosities of the stars from observations of bright star clusters, that stars must have different intrinsic brightness to explain how these clusters behaved. This obviously meant that you couldn't just assume that their apparent brightness depended only on their position, because they all had different intrinsic brightnesses. Despite this warning, however, the Herschels ignored the problem and proceeded to produce a number of different versions of the structure of our galaxy. It was only when they finally measured the magnitudes of visual binary stars, realising that these binary stars could have different luminosities given that they were so close together, that they were finally forced to agree with Michel's conclusion. This essentially ended in the Herschels losing all faith in the theoretical model of the galaxy that they'd built up. Even building up length scales to understand what the galaxy and the universe was like is intrinsically difficult. The discovery that stars were much like the sun raised the probability that they must be at an incredible distance to explain how faint they were compared to the sun. But getting a handle on these distances, and the realisation that the nearest star was actually light years away, took some time. In the last episode we talked about how Cepheid variables and other standard candles, astronomical entities where you know the luminosity, could be used to gauge these distances. The first proper calculation of the distance to a star, however, used a technique called astronomical parallax. When Copernicus proposed that the Earth orbited the Sun and not the other way around, he was met with a great deal of scepticism. His ideas also had to battle against their critics. Sceptics of Copernicus's idea argued that if the Earth really did orbit the Sun, the closer stars would be seen to move in relation to the more distant stars as Earth travelled from one side of the Sun to the other. This is the same phenomenon that we see when we drive along a road, and notice that objects closer to the road seem to pass our view quickly, while those in the far distance appear to be moving more slowly. In the case of the Earth circling the Sun once a year, closer stars should be seen to jump back and forth against background stars over six months. The amount of this jump is called the parallax of the star. The sceptics were right in that observing such relative motions among the stars would be solid evidence that the Earth is actually moving, but it was a very difficult observation to make since all of the stars were so far away. When you're talking about positions in the sky, typically you measure in degrees as in degrees in a circle. Since there are 360 degrees in a circle, the separation between a star directly overhead and one on the horizon is 90 degrees. The width of the moon is about 0.5 degrees or one half of one degree in the sky. When the astronomer Bessel was the first to estimate the distance to a far-off star using parallax, the separation that he was trying to measure was actually less than two hundred thousandths of a degree. This is comparable to the width of a pizza in New York, as observed from San Francisco. As a result, he worked on this problem on and off for 28 years. The way to imagine this, if you want to, is first to picture a triangle. In one corner, we have the Earth on one side of the Sun. The other corner, the next door one, is the Earth on the other side of the Sun. And the final corner is the far-off star, If you imagine that the distance between the Earth on either side of the Sun is tiny compared to the distance to the far-off star, you're imagining a right-angled triangle that has a really, 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 really long base that is the distance to the far-off star. And it subtends a tiny angle, this distance between the Earth on either side of the Sun, compared to the distance to this far-off star. That tiny angle is the shift in angular position of the star that we're trying to measure. This tiny back-and-forth movement of the star 61 Cygni in comparison with background stars reported by Bessel in 1838, corresponded to a distance from Earth of 11.4 light-years, a value that's very close to modern measurements. This is really a testament to how good the work was that Bessel did in measuring the angular displacement of this star. At the time, it was considered a staggering distance. Since it was already known that it took light from the Sun about 8 minutes to travel the 93 million miles to Earth, the idea that it took light 11.4 years to travel to Earth suggested an almost incomprehensible distance. And that was one of the closest stars where you could actually use the parallax method at all. This process of parallax to estimate distances, by the way, gives rise to another one of our fancy units of measurement for astronomical distances. Back when parallax was being used to estimate distance almost entirely, it was essentially interchangeable when you were talking about the angular separation of stars in parallax and their distance from Earth. For frankly daft reasons, 1 60th of a degree is called an arc minute, and 1 60th of an arc minute is called an arc second. So 1 divided by 3600 of a degree is an arc second. If a star's parallax is a single arc second, so we're saying that the apparent shift in its position is just 1 over 3600 of a degree, then we're saying that it's 1 parsec away from us. Yes, that's right, George Lucas doesn't indeed know his astronomy properly. The parsec is a unit of distance, Equivalent to about 3.2 light years, and for these archaic reasons it's still used today, although we'll often talk about kiloparsecs or gigaparsecs as the distances to stars and galaxies. We described in the last episode how astronomers conclusively proved that the stars were other suns just like our sun. Another truth about the universe that we all take for granted the fact that the universe is made up of billions of galaxies which are gravitationally bound clusters of stars and gas. Well, this is another fact that also had to emerge from the fog of our ignorance about how the universe is constructed, and the confusion that arises from trying to infer what these objects in space that we can see through our telescopes really are. Nowadays, the term nebula has a specific meaning and refers to a particular kind of object. But in previous centuries, it simply referred to any object that appeared to be diffuse and spread out, something that was emitting light in space, but it wasn't a point star any sort of cloud of light in the heavens if you like. Ptolemy, the astronomer in 150 AD, noted that five so-called stars appeared to actually be nebulous clouds. In the 1600s the Orion Nebula was first observed and the Herschels, Caroline and William, helped to expand the list of nebulae that had been discovered to over 500 by the 1800s. But what those early astronomers didn't realise that these nebulae were not all the same kind of object. Some of them, like the Orion Nebula, are what we now refer to as true nebulae, which are vast interstellar clouds of dust and gas. These kinds of nebulae can be formed when stars go supernova, and indeed the Crab Nebula was formed by a supernova that was first observed by European and Chinese astronomers in 1054 AD. But other objects that used to be called nebulae were in fact totally different, The so-called Andromeda Nebula was not a cloud of dust and gas, but instead an entire galaxy containing billions of stars. From Earth, both of these kinds of objects, the post-supernovae remnants and the true galaxies, looked fairly similar. To the early telescopes that were available at the time, they were both just smudges of light in the sky. But the gradual discovery that some nebulae were clouds of dust and gas, while others were in fact entirely new galaxies just like the Milky Way is another example of how our knowledge about the universe had to fight against preconceived notions that turned out to be incorrect, and how new theories had to painstakingly assemble evidence to overturn what had gone before. Now here I have to give a lot of credit to the philosophers, specifically Immanuel Kant. I might disagree with his bizarre attempt to come up with a universal law for morality in the Categorical Imperative, which turns out meaning that we're apparently not allowed to lie to deceive murderers because deception is always bad. Despite his failure at solving the problem of human morality, he did totally call it on the true nature of the nebulae in the 1800s, long before any observations could conclusively prove anything either way. He said, It is much more natural and reasonable to assume that a nebula is not a unique and solitary sun, but a system of numerous suns, which appear crowded, because of their distance, into a space so limited that their light, which would be imperceptible were each of them to be isolated, suffices, owing to their enormous numbers, to give a pale and uniform luster. Their analogy with our own system of stars, their form, which is precisely what it should be according to our theory, the faintness of their light, which denotes an infinite distance, all are in admirable accord and lead us to consider these elliptical spots as systems of the same order of our own in a word, to be milky ways similar to the one whose constitution we have explained. And if these hypotheses, in which analogy and observation consistently lend mutual support, have the same merit as formal demonstration, we must consider the existence of such systems as demonstrated. We see that scattering through space, out to infinite distances, there exist similar systems of stars, nebulous stars, nebulae, and that creation, in the whole extent of its infinite grandeur, is everywhere organised into systems whose members are in relation with one another. A vast field lies open to discoveries, and observation alone will give the key. End quote. Narratively speaking, at least, this whole controversy came to a head in 1920, with the great debate between two astronomers, Harlow Shapley and Heber Curtis, at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. The fundamental difference between them was on the question of these spiral nebulae. Shapley thought that all of the spiral nebulae were contained within the Milky Way, while Curtis thought that these spiral nebulae were actually separate objects, galaxies much like the Milky Way. At that time, the idea that these might be separate galaxies, these objects were referred to as island universes, which sounds very exotic. So even in the 1920s, at the forefront of astronomy, humanity was still trying to distinguish between objects that were large and far away, and objects that were smaller and close at hand. The telescopes of the time were not powerful enough to resolve the fact that some of these so-called nebulae were composed of many individual stars. One of the fascinating things about the great debate is that actually, both astronomers made their arguments based in part on observations that turned out, ultimately, to be incorrect. For example, Shapley pointed to an observation made by another astronomer, who claimed to have observed the pinwheel galaxy rotating visibly over the course of a few years. Shapley argued that, if the pinwheel galaxy was indeed a galaxy that was thousands of light years across, like the Milky Way, and it genuinely was rotating at this speed, then for that galaxy to be rotating it would lead to impossibly fast speeds for the stars on the outside of the galaxy. Ultimately though, the observation that Shapley was relying on turned out to be incorrect, and the pinwheel galaxy, if indeed it is rotating, is rotating much more slowly than he initially thought. Another line of evidence used by Shapley, was the observation of a nova within the Andromeda Nebula. This nova had, for a while, been brighter than the entire Andromeda object. Surely, Shapley argued, if Andromeda truly was a galaxy composed of billions of stars like the Milky Way, it logically couldn't be outshone by a single star within it. We now know that what Shapley was talking about was a supernova, which can indeed briefly outshine in that incredible outpouring of energy, the entire galaxy that contains it. Shapley had thought it would be impossible or illogical for one star to put out so much energy at once. This might be a perfectly reasonable assumption, but nature doesn't. One writer at the time, Agnes Clark, remarked that if these stellar outbursts were really indeed individual stars exploding within some far-off galaxy, then they would have to be, quote, on a scale of magnitude such as the imagination recoils from contemplating. The imagination may have recoiled from contemplating that these explosions could really be supernovae, but we now know that they are. We now know, of course, that the Andromeda galaxy is a galaxy much like our Milky Way, and is in fact the Milky Way's nearest neighbour. Indeed, we know that these galaxies are on a collision course and at some point will collide with each other. So Shapley was wrong in a couple of his observations and assumptions that he used to try and prove the fact that these nebulae weren't really galaxies. But Curtis, who had the right side of the historical argument, was also incorrect in some of his assumptions. His assumption about the size of the galaxy was wrong. Most of his estimates for its size turned out to be quite large underestimates. In Curtis's defence, he does admit to a lot of uncertainty about the precise dimensions of our galaxy, but he also states that he is attracted by the beauty of the theory. He says, quote, there is a unity and an internal agreement in the features of the island universe theory, which appeals very strongly to me, end quote. Curtis also falsely assumed that the sun was towards the centre of the galaxy, which turns out not to be true. Yeah, in his his fundamental argument, that the nebulae were in fact galaxies, he was correct. So the great debate stands as an interesting historical example, not only of the difficulty of understanding and comprehending the meaning of the observations that we can make of the universe, and of the many wrong ideas we have to work through before getting to our modern understanding, but also of the way that these beliefs are formed. Science is not some linear progression of theories that are entirely incorrect being overturned and replaced by theories that are entirely complete and correct. Shapley and Curtis both expounded ideas that were mixtures of right and wrong, and each of them had their own set of observations that could plausibly, albeit with some uncertainty, support their ideas. Science in general progresses, as our understanding of science does when we learn it ourselves, by a series of analogies that have more and more power progressively, to explain the observations we can make, the workings of the universe in different circumstances. Each approximation gets us closer and closer to the truth, or at least to what we can know. Sometimes though you simply need more information to be certain of anything. One running theme from early cosmology is really how, as the broader structure of our universe, or at the very least the sense of its vastness beyond us, emerges from our ignorance we are forced to reckon with how tiny we really are in the face of it all. You have the grand, triumphalist, early model of the Earth at the centre of the universe, and the stars as pinpricks of light in our sky. Humanity is front and centre. The universe, our domain. The stars, a backdrop. If things exist, out there, then they merely serve as a backdrop, a decoration for the domain of the humans. But then we split the spectra from the stars, and found that they were suns. The Herschels tried to count them, to map them, to rest the heavenly domain back into something we could at least chart and quantify. But as their telescopes got better, they couldn't find the edge of the galaxy. They just kept finding newer stars that appeared to be further away. Herschel's attempt to produce a hand-drawn map of the cosmos was always naive. Even when we discovered that the stars were other suns, and that the Earth orbited the Sun rather than being at the centre of it all, we still assumed, as Herschel did, that the Earth must at least be in the centre of the galaxy. Wrong again, as we now find that we're 27,000 light-years from the centre. We went from adding up the ages in the Old Testament to estimate that the universe might be 6,000 years old, to discovering that it is in fact more like 13.7 billion years old. Suddenly, rather than our own lives and our own documented time representing a significant chunk of the history of the universe, we must contend with our lives as what they really are, a fraction of a blink of an eye in the face of the age of humanity, and then of our planet, and then of our galaxy, and then of our universe. And then we found that some of these nebulae, just smudges to us then, were not objects in our galaxy but they were whole, fully-fledged galaxies, possibly larger than our own. And again, as our telescopes improved, our discoveries of these new galaxies continued, unabated, endlessly, in all directions. Think of the age of discovery here. Within just a few decades, we go from a perfectly reasonable model of the universe being that our galaxy is the only one containing everything that exists, which has eternally sat in space, to suddenly acknowledging thousands of galaxies and the fact that the universe is expanding and changing all the time. In other words, the process of cosmology has been the gradual step-by-step revelation of just how small we are in the context of the universe. From being the heart and soul of the party, and we deluded ourselves the purpose for the whole thing, we have come to reckon with the fact that Earth, our home, is an insignificant speck in the middle of an unremarkable backwater of the cosmos. And yet, from our dot, we can see and understand so much of the whole. Next episode, we'll discuss how the early 1920s saw revolutions in theoretical cosmology, as well as observational cosmology, and Edwin Hubble's observations conclusively settling the great debate, as well as how he further combined the tools in the growing cosmologist toolkit to prove that the universe was expanding. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction in our series on cosmology. There are plenty of ways you can help out the show if you'd like to help us produce more episodes. You can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you will find an episode guide that will give you a guide to all of the past episodes, if this is the first one you've heard. Head back to the start of the Cosmology series, but also listen to all the interviews we've done, our series on nuclear fusion, our many, many series on many different topics. You'll find a guide there that will help you. The scripts, by the way, are being published now at physicalattraction.medium.com. So, if you want to read some past scripts for these episodes, or track down that thing I said one time, you can find them there. We have a subreddit. If you go to reddit.com/r/physicspodcast, you'll be able to discuss the most recent episodes of the show with a very small burgeoning community that exists there. You can also find us on Twitter at physicspod, and the Facebook page Physical Attraction. The best way to get in touch with us, though, is that contact form on the website. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like us to cover, things you think we should expand on things you think we should cover in more detail uh, people you'd like to hear us interview any of that stuff please do send it there you can support the show in a number of ways there's a paypal link on the website physicspodcast.com which you can go and donate to for a one-time donation or you can subscribe to the patreon where you'll get early episodes and special bonus episodes that will only be released to people who are subscribed to the patreon and thank you very much to all of those of you who have done and have supported the show for many months now i really really appreciate it If you want to support the show in a non-financial way, you can review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, All of that stuff helps us get noticed in the algorithm and all that sort of thing. And you can tell other people who might be interested to listen to the show, Um, particularly for these uh, series on physics. If you happen to be a teacher or someone who is involved in teaching, I don't know, maybe people will find this useful as uh, some extra background material if you're covering this kind of thing for a school class. Um, I will try and keep it clean. Until next time, then, please do take care.